Chapter Six of Esther Reed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Esther Reed by Pansy. Chapter Six. Something happens. Now the letter which had caused so much trouble in the Reed family, and especially in Esther's heart, was in one sense not an ordinary letter. It had been written to Esther's cousin, Abby, her one intimate friend, Uncle Ralph's only daughter. These two, of the same age, had been correspondents almost from their babyhood, and yet they had never seen each other's faces. To go to New York, to her uncle's house, to see and be with cousin Abby, had been the one great dream of Esther's heart, as likely to be realized, she could not help acknowledging, as a journey to the moon, and no more so. New York was at least five hundred miles away, and the money necessary to carry her there seemed like a small fortune to Esther, to say nothing of the endless additions to her wardrobe which would have to be made before she could account herself ready. So she contented herself, or perhaps it would be more truthful to say she made herself discontented, with ceaseless dreams over what New York and her uncle's family, and, above all, cousin Abby, were like, and whether she would ever see them, and why it had always happened that something was sure to prevent Abby's visits to herself, and whether she would like her as well, if she could be with her, as she did now, and a hundred other confused and disconnected thoughts about them all. Esther had no idea what this miserable, restless dreaming of hers was doing for her. She did not see that her very desires after a better life, which were sometimes strong upon her, were colored with impatience and envy. Cousin Abby was a Christian, and wrote her some earnest letters, but to Esther it seemed a very easy matter indeed for one who was surrounded, as she imagined Abby to be, by luxury and love, to be a joyous, eager Christian. Into this very letter that poor Julia had sent sailing down the stream, some of her inmost feelings had been poured. "'Don't think me devoid of all aspirations after something higher,' so the letter ran. Dear Abby, you, in your sunny home, can never imagine how wildly I long sometimes to be free from my surroundings, free from petty cares and trials and vexations, which, I feel, are eating out my very life. Oh, to be free for one hour, to feel myself at liberty, for just one day, to follow my own tastes and inclinations, to be the person I believe God designed me to be, to fill the niche I believe He designed me to fill, Abby, I hate my life. I have not a happy moment. It is all rasped and warped and unlovely. I am nothing, and I know it, and I had rather, for my own comfort, be like most of those who surround me, nothing and not know it. Sometimes I cannot help asking myself why I was made as I am. Why can't I be a clod, a plodder, and drag my way with stupid good nature through this miserable world, instead of chafing and bruising myself at every step? Now it would be very natural to suppose that a young lady with a grain of sense left in her brains would, in cooler moments, have been rather glad than otherwise to have such a restless, unhappy, unchristian-like letter hopelessly lost. But Esther felt, as has been seen, thoroughly angry that so much lofty sentiment, which she mistook for religion, was entirely lost. Yet let it not be supposed that one word of this rebellious outbreak was written simply for effect. 
Esther, when she wrote she hated her life, was thoroughly and miserably in earnest. When, in the solitude of her own room, she paced her floor that evening and murmured despairingly, Oh, if something would only happen to rest me for just a little while, she was more thoroughly in earnest than any human being who feels that Christ has died to save her, and that she has an eternal resting place prepared for her, and waiting to receive her, has any right to feel on such a subject. Yet, though the letter had never reached its destination, the pitying Saviour, looking down upon his poor foolish lamb in tender love, made haste to prepare an answer to her wild, rebellious cry for help, even though she cried blindly, without a thought of the helper who is sufficient for all human needs. Long looked for come at last, and Sadie's clear voice rang through the dining room, and a moment after that young lady herself reached the pump room, holding up for Esther's view a dainty envelope directed in a yet more dainty hand to Miss Esther Reed. Here is that wonderful letter from Cousin Abby, which you have sent me to the post office after three times a day for as many weeks. It reached here by the way of Cape Horn, I should say, by its appearance. It has been remailed twice. Esther set her pail down hastily, seized the letter, and retired to the privacy of the pantry to devour it, and for once was oblivious to the fact that Sadie lunched on bits of cake broken from the smooth square loaf while she waited to hear the news. "'Anything special?' Mrs. Reed asked, pausing in the doorway, which question Esther answered by turning a flushed and eager face toward them, as she passed the letter to Sadie, with permission to read it aloud. Surprised into silence by the unusual confidence, Sadie read the dainty epistle without comment. "'My dear Esther, I'm in a grand flurry, and shall therefore not stop for long stories to-day, but come to the pith of the matter immediately. We want you.' There is nothing new, you are aware, as we have been wanting you for many a day, but there is new decision in my plans and new inducements this time. We not only want, but must have you. Please don't say no to me this once. We are going to have a wedding in our house, and we need your presence and wisdom and taste. Father says you can't be your mother's daughter if you haven't exquisite taste. I am very busy helping to get the bride in order, which is a work of time and patience, and I do so much need your aid. Besides, the bride is your Uncle Ralph's only daughter, so of course you ought to be interested in her. Esther, do come. Father says the enclosed fifty dollars is a present from him, which you must honor by letting it pay your fare to New York just as soon as possible. The wedding is fixed for the twenty-second, and we want you here at least three weeks before that. Brother Ralph is to be first groomsman, and he especially needs your assistance, as the bride has named you for her first bridesmaid. I'm to dress, I mean, the bride is to dress, in white, and mother has a dress prepared for the bridesmaid to match hers, so that matter need not delay nor cause you anxiety. This letter is getting too long. I meant it to be very brief and pointed. I designed every other word to be come, but after all I do not believe you will need so much urging to be with us at this time. I flatter myself that you love me enough to come to me if you can. So, leaving Ralph to write directions concerning route and trains, I will run and try on the bride's bonnet, which has just come home. P.S. There is to be a groom as well as a bride, though I see I have said nothing concerning him. Never mind, you shall see him when you come. Dear Esther, there isn't a word of tense in this letter, I know. 
but I haven't time to put any in. Really, laughed Sadie as she concluded the reading, this is almost foolish enough to have been written by me. Isn't it splendid, though? Esther, I'm glad you are you. I wish I had corresponded with Cousin Abby myself. A wedding of any kind is a delicious novelty, but a real New York wedding and a bridesmaid besides. My! I've a mind to clap my hands for you, seeing you are too dignified to do it yourself. Oh, said Esther, from whose face the flush had faded, leaving it actually pale with excitement and expected disappointment. You don't suppose I am foolish enough to think I can go, do you? Of course you will go when Uncle Ralph has paid your fare, and more, too. Fifty dollars will buy a good deal besides a ticket to New York. Mother, don't you ever think of saying she cannot go. There is nothing to hinder her. She is to go, isn't she? Why, I don't know, answered this perplexed mother. I want her to, I am sure. Yet I don't see how she can be spared. She will need a great many things besides a ticket, and fifty dollars do not go as far as you imagine. Besides, Esther, you know I depend on you so much. Esther's lips parted to speak, and had the words come forth which were in her heart, they would have been sharp and bitter ones, about never expecting to go anywhere, never being able to do anything but work, but Sadie's eager voice was quicker than hers. Oh, now, mother, it is no use to talk in that way. I've quite set my heart on Esther's going. I never expect to have an invitation there myself, so I must take my honors second-handed. Mother, it is time you learned to depend on me a little. I'm two inches taller than Esther, and I've no doubt I shall develop into a remarkable person when she is where we can't all lean upon her. School closes this very week, you know, and we have vacation until October. Abby couldn't have chosen a better time. Whom do you suppose she is to marry? What a queer creature not to tell us. Say she can go, mother, quick. Sadie's last point was a good one in Mrs. Reed's opinion. Perhaps the giddy Sadie, at once her pride and her anxiety, might learn a little self-reliance by feeling a shadow of the weight of care which rested continually on Esther. You certainly need the change, she said, her eyes resting pityingly on the young, careworn face of her eldest daughter. But how could we manage about your wardrobe? Your black silk is nice, to be sure, but you would need one bright evening dress at least, and you know we haven't the money to spare. Then Sadie, thoughtless, selfish Sadie, who was never supposed to have one care for others, and very little for herself, Sadie, who vexed Esther nearly every hour of the day, by what at the time always seemed some specially selfish, heedless act, suddenly shone out gloriously. She stood still, and actually seemed to think for a full minute, while Esther jerked a pan of potatoes toward her, and commenced peeling vigorously. Then she clapped her hands and gave vent to little gleeful shouts before she exclaimed, "'Oh, mother, mother, I have it exactly!' I wonder we didn't think of it before. There's my blue silk, just the thing. I am tall, and she is short, so it will make her a beautiful train dress. Won't that do splendidly? The magnitude of this proposal awed even Esther into silence. To be appreciated, it must be understood that Sadie Reed had never in her life possessed a silk dress. Mrs. Reed's best black silk had long ago been cut over for Esther. So had her brown and white plaid so there had been nothing of the sort to remodel for Sadie, and this elegant sky-blue silk had been lying in its satin-paper covering for more than two years, 
It was the gift of a dear friend of Mrs. Reed's girlhood to the young beauty who bore her name, and had been waiting all this time for Sadie to attain proper growth to admit of its being cut to for her. Meantime she had feasted her eyes upon it, and gloried in the prospect of that wonderful day when she should sweep across the platform of music hall with the same silk falling in beautiful blue waves around her, for it had long been settled that it was to be worn first on that day when she should graduate. No wonder, then, that Esther stood in mute astonishment while Mrs. Reed commented, "'Why, Sadie, my dear child, is it possible you are willing to give up your blue silk?' "'Not a bit of it, mother. I don't intend to give it up the least bit in the world. I'm merely going to lend it. It's too pretty to stay poked up in that drawer by itself any longer.' I've set my heart on its coming out this very season. Just as likely as not it will learn to put on airs for me when I graduate. I'm not at all satisfied with my attainments in that line. So Esther shall take it to New York, and if she sits down or stands up or turns around, or has one minute's peace while she has it on, for fear lest she should spot it or tear it or get it stepped on, I'll never forgive her. And at this harangue Esther laughed a free, glad laugh, such as was seldom heard from her. Some way it began to seem as if she were really to go, Sadie had such a brisk business-like way of saying, Esther shall take it to New York. Oh, if she only, only could go, she would be willing to do anything after that. But one peep, one little peep into the magic world that lay outside of that dining room and kitchen, she felt as if she must have. Perhaps that laugh did as much for her as anything. It almost startled Mrs. Reed with its sweetness and rarity. What if the change should freshen and brighten her, and bring her back to them with some of the sparkles that continually danced in Sadie's eyes? But what, on the other hand, if she should grow utterly disgusted with the monotony of their very quiet, very busy life, and refuse to work in that most necessary treadmill any longer? So the mother argued and hesitated, and the decision, which was to mean so much more than any of those knew, trembled in the balance. For let Mrs. Reed once find voice to say, Oh, Esther, I don't see but what you will have to give it up. And Esther would have turned quickly and with curling lip to that pan of potatoes, and have sharply forbidden any one to mention the subject to her again. Once more Sadie, dear, merry, silly Sadie, came to the rescue. Mother, oh, mother, what an endless time you are in coming to a decision. I could plan an expedition to the North Pole in less time than this. I am just wild to have her go. I want to hear how a genuine New York bride looks. Besides, you know, dear mother, I want to stay in the kitchen with you. Esther does everything, and I don't have any chance. I perfectly long to bake and boil and broil and brew things. Say yes, there's a darling." and Mrs. Reed looked at the bright, flushed face, and thought how little the dear child knew about all these matters, and how little patience poor Esther, who was so competent herself, would have with Sadie's ignorance, and said, slowly and hesitatingly, but yet actually said, "'Well, Esther, my daughter, I really think we must try to get along without you for a little while.' And these three people really seemed to think that they had decided the matter, though two of them were at least theoretical believers in a special providence, it never once occurred to them that this little thing in all its details had been settled for ages. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tricia G.